This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello and welcome to the third grid talk of the 2017 series. Today I'm thrilled to introduce Dr. Tim Sherwood. Dr. Sherwood is a professor of computer science at UC Santa Barbara, specializing in the development of high-performance, low-powered, and mathematically verifiable computer systems. He holds a bachelor's of science degree from UC Davis, master's and PhD degrees in computer science and engineering from UC San Diego, and now serves as the associate vice chancellor for research for UC Santa Barbara. He is a distinguished scientist of the ACM, co-founder of a startup on computer hardware security, winner of the UCSB Academic Senate Teaching Award, and seven-time recipient of the Top Pick Award from IEEE Micro Magazine for contributions related to chip and silicon systems design. Today, he's going to tell us how he tricked a rock into thinking. So please help me welcome to the stage, Dr. Tim Sherwood. Hi. Hi, it's wonderful to see you all here. Um, I want to start today's talk with just a, a very brief point in history, because something pretty amazing happened about 20 years ago. Um, around 1996, Gary Kasparov played Deep Blue. And Deep Blue, at the time, was one of the 300 uh, most powerful supercomputers that existed in the world. And Gary Kasparov lost a game to this supercomputer. Uh, and this is actually a pretty remarkable thing. This is the first time ever a sitting world champion had lost a game to a computer. And I think that's actually a pretty remarkable feat, for one. I think also it's pretty remarkable that I think m many of the people in this room uh, may have not been born then, and also uh, may think that's actually not very re remarkable, because they know computers are so powerful and so fast, you know, of course a computer is faster. And in fact, your intuition is absolutely right. The, the mobile phone that you have in your pocket, assuming you've bought one in the last couple years, um, is actually far, far more powerful than the, than the deep blue supercomputer. In fact, running the right software, your cell phone, could beat, uh, with very high probability, many of the best uh, chess players in the world today. It's pretty amazing. It's also pretty remarkable that 20 years before this happened, a leading expert in the world, someone who deeply understood chess, and actually has written books on both chess and computers, said that the idea of an electronic world champion belongs only in the pages of a science fiction book. This is pretty amazing. These are actually all three pretty remarkable chain of events that's happened over the last 40 years. We went from something which was strictly in the realm of science fiction to something which is at the limit of what we could do with, if we marshaled all of the resources that we had at our disposal and put them into you know, a single task to the mundane, you know, things that we just take for granted in our day-to-day -day life. And this is actually a pretty remarkable transformation that's happened over the past 40 years. And I think sometimes something that we often lose sight of, we think about, we just assume the next amazing thing is happening. We very quickly pull it into what, you know, what we consider normal. But I, you know, I think there's so many young people here today who are just beginning on their career. You know, I ask you to think, where are you going to be in your career 20 years from now? Where are you going to be in your career 40 years from now? Uh, probably still very active in your field. And you know, the things that are science fiction now may become mundane by the time you're finished. So you're preparing now for a, to embark on a career of a significant transformation. So this you know, is not just about chess. This is not talk about chess in any way. Uh, but actually, this happens again and again. You know, voice recognition was a technology which was 
seen by many to be just completely not feasible, that you'd have to fully understand the way a human being um, communicated in order to do text recognition. And of course now, you know, this is just something we take for granted, um, that you can do voice recognition when you send a text message. Um, uh, the same could be said of driving cars. We're maybe not as far along there, you know, but 2000, in 2005, uh, you know, we started really pulling together huge amounts of computational resources to see if we could build a self-driving car. And they looked nothing like a little car that you would buy at the store. Uh, you know, they looked like this, you know, huge behemoths that used all kinds of incredibly expensive equipment. And you know, it wasn't 20 years before this that I remember people talking about this idea of a self-driving car and just laughing that it was not a realistic idea to pursue. Uh, and now, you know, 15 years from now, I fully expect this to be just mundane, you know, and for us to have amusing anecdotes that we share with our family about falling asleep in the car and telling it to go to one city to Vancouver, uh, Canada, and waking up in Vancouver, uh, Oregon somewhere, you know. These are the kinds of stories that I fully expect to happen in 15 years. So what's driven this huge transformation in what's been possible? Well, I would argue a huge piece of it is actually computing. So as I said, the, the cell phone in your pocket is probably about 50 times more powerful than the deep blue supercomputer. Again, one of the 300 fastest supercomputers in the world at the time. And that machine was about 50 times faster than the machines that were available in 1973 when this individual said that, uh, you know, electronic world champion uh, belongs in science fiction. Uh, and this is a huge transformation. In fact, if you go back and you said, oh, if I was trying to buy all the computation that's available on my cell phone today, but buy it in 1973, it would cost you about uh, somewhere on the order of $300 billion, right? That's how, much, that's how much computation has changed. From something that would have cost you $300 billion to something you can buy at the store, you know, and you carry it in your pocket and you get mad when it gets chipped, right? That, that's how far we've gone in 40 years, uh, which is pretty amazing. So you're all, you know, you're all 1973 billionaires and you didn't even know it. <laughs> okay, so there's a couple of big ideas that I hope you take away from this talk. And this first big idea is that for computing, the gap between what's science fiction and science fact is actually a lot closer than you might think because we've been just improving exponentially. And that's, that, that it's hard to imagine. So for the second part of the talk, I want to try to break down, you know, start to break down why that might be. How is it possible that we've been able to achieve this, uh, you know, magnificent improvement in performance? So let's start with just a simple cell phone, and let's take it apart, and t you know, let's look what's going on inside it. If you take your cell phone, you, if you blow it apart like this, uh, I do not recommend you, you do this, uh, if you want to keep your cell phone, uh, you know, you get your display and your battery, and then actually, if you kind of zoom in right here, you can actually see this little strip down the middle, which is actually contains all the computing power of your cell phone. In fact, this little square right in the middle is actually the, the, the main guts that make it all work. That's your microprocessor right at the, in the center. Okay? And inside that little package is actually this little chunk of silicon, uh, which gets all this work done, an amazing amount of work done. I think this quote actually captures so beautifully what I love about my field of computer architecture. If you ever code something that feels like a hack, but it just works, just remember that a CPU is literally a rock that we tricked into thinking. Uh, so this uh, Ben Driscoll came up with this quote on Twitter. Uh, he also has an amazing webcomic. You should check it out. Uh, but this quote actually just so perfectly captured me what I, you know, the amazement that I feel every day in my job as I build faster and faster microprocessors. You know, we take this monocrystalline single uh, silicon ingot and slice it up into these 
very thin chunks, and then we grow uh, the circuitry right onto the surface of that uh, piece of silicon, and then we put electricity on it, and it does amazing things, absolutely amazing things. But sometimes it's easy to forget that. So, you know, how does this actually work? How is it actually possible to build a microprocessor? Well, really, you know, it's both incredibly complex and incredibly simple at the same time. So, at a high level, really, a microprocessor is really made of two things, switches and wires. Those are really the only two bits, okay? And the switches, uh, we can make them really tiny and really fast. I'll, just show, I'll give you some sense of how tiny and how fast. And the wires are actually what connects them all together, and actually how we decide to wire these up is actually an incredibly interesting part of this, uh, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Okay, so many people have maybe heard that word transistor, or maybe you've even seen transistors at some point in the past, but look, at a high level, really, in a microprocessor, a transistor acts as a switch. That's all it does, for the most part. You know, it, it can be in one of two states. It can either be open, in which case it acts like it's just disconnected, or it can be closed, in which case now it acts like a wire. And that's basically the two states. So just like any switch, you can open and close it all the time, and you know, it, it does switch things, that's it. So the, the, the neat thing about this is rather than actually have to have you know, a tiny person who actually pulls these switches up and down uh, um, a billion times a second, in fact, the switches are actually control, what controls the switches? Other switches. So we can have electrically controlled switches. And those switches basically, again, on or off. And that's it. That's basically what you need to know about transistors in order to make a microprocessor. And a chip full of these of transistors is no more a computer than you are, your brain is a bag of neurons, right? Of course, if I just handed you a bag of neurons and said, you know, this is my friend John, right? That's not, that's not, that's not good, right? <laughs> First, I should, how did I get this bag of neurons? It's many questions are asked. Uh, but, but instead, you know, what makes it interesting is actually how they're all connected up. How, the, you know, that's where the most interesting piece lies, in my, in my opinion. And the same is true of a microprocessor. How you actually take these tiny switches and connect them up in new and interesting and innovative ways is what uh, is dri you know, a big part of what drives our field forward. So you could take these tiny switches and you could build all kinds of amazing stuff. So, you know, but they get really complicated really fast. So here's a picture. This is actually, a, should be a somewhat valid circuit diagram of a one-bit adder, okay? This adds two one-bit numbers, which are either zero or one, right? And then, you know, zero plus one is one, and zero plus zero is zero, and all those good things happen. Uh, and, you know, you have to work out exactly what happens when the different switches are in the different cases. And you put your input A and your input B on there, and then either on or off basically propagates to the output. There's nothing, one of the things I love about, about this is there's nothing magical in here. You know, you can break it down at each little step, and we figure out how to build a switch, and then we take that switch, and then we figure out how to build a one-bit adder, and then we take that one-bit adder, and then we figure out how to build uh, a multi-bit adder, something that can add numbers like you and I might think about them. Uh, and then we might take that multi-bit adder and then build something that does, you know, more complicated math, like does multiplies on using the adder, because you use addition to do multiplication. And then you might take that multiplication and 
build multiple of them and build something that does matrix multiplication. And you might take those things and then put them together and call that, you know, hook it up with a bunch of wiring and call that a microprocessor. And in each step, you build, you build, you build complexity, you build uh, functionality uh, on top of, you know, one thing on top of the next, building, building, building. Well, these transistors, uh, the story of transistors is actually really interesting because now not only can we build these switches, but we could build a lot of them. Okay, I would argue a mind-blowing amount of them. Right? So in the 1950s, we really only knew how to build one. We could build one at a time. You know? And then sometime in the 1960s, we started saying, hey, look, actually, since I already have the silicon here, and I'm already putting transistors on it, rather than just put one, why don't I put four? And they, oh, that's a good idea. We should do that. That's way cheaper. Let's put four on there. And so in the 1960s, we did. We started putting four on there. And that was pretty good technology. We, met, we managed to go to the moon using that technology. You know, but in the, we were limited to like on the order of 16 transistors. By the 1970s, we could actually start to put enough transistors on a single chip that we could actually start to build stuff that would run software, right? So we could actually start to build our microprocessors. So we had like these little 8-bit CPUs. You know, so we're dealing with thousands of transistors at this point. And then in the 80s, we're starting to do, you know, a quarter of a million transistors. Okay, by the 90s, we're doing uh, uh, 3 million transistors. And we're building really huge, complicated microprocessors that do all kinds of stuff that, you know, like they take your software and they, it analyzes it and it tries to run the software in an order that's different than the way that you wrote it to run uh, to make it go faster. All kinds of really interesting tricks like this. And by the 2000s, we were actually saying, you know what, we could do all that stuff and we can actually take multiple of those processors and stick them all on the same chip. And then we have multiprocessors. You know, and then we're doing like 500 million transistors. And today, now we're building whole systems on chips. So we have multi, so, so modern, like a modern cell phone chip actually has multiple multiprocessors on it. Okay, so it has a multiprocessor over here that does all your, like, runs your Angry Birds, and then it's got another chunk over here that runs, uh, like, all your GPU stuff, and it's got another chunk over here that runs all the cellular modem that talks to the, you know, talks to the radio. Um, you know, and you have all these different multiprocessors there. And then by the, uh, you know, so at this point we're doing close to like 2.5 billion transistors. In fact, I just looked it up preparing for this talk. I think the biggest one design I could find, the commercial design is like 4 billion transistors. You know, and this trend is exponential, exponential in a real way. I mean, it keeps actually, it keeps doubling here, if you notice these numbers, right? And if you extrapolate, you know, by the 2020s, we should be building something with, 100 billion transistors, you know, and I say 100, per, that's ridiculous. I don't know what a 100 tra billion transistors machine would look like, but yet we will build it. <laughs> what it looks like, it remains an open question, actually. How are we able to fit 100 billion, how are we able to fit 5 billion of something on a tiny little chip? Well, the answer to that is we build them incredibly small, right? So here's actually, a, this is a picture of a, of a fairly modern transistor. I'm not gonna go through all the pieces of it, but what I would like to call your attention to is the scale at the right-hand corner there, the lower right-hand corner. 30 nanometers, okay? That's really small. <laughs> you know, you, it's hard to get your head around just how small that is because you think, oh yeah, sure, that's uh, you know, three times bigger than 10 nanometers. But we don't really have something for a sense of nanometers. It's just too small. But just as a point of reference, the wavelength a visible light, a blue light, is like four, it's in the range of like 400 something nanometers. That means, you know, at this scale, 
light is just a wave. You can't even see this under an optical microscope. It's too small to be seen. That's how small this is. It's incredibly small, amazingly small. But I think I still, you still can't get a good sense of it. In fact, even I, someone who does this every day, including holidays and weekends, <laughs> thinking about this type of stuff, even I cannot really comprehend exactly how small these things are. But I find this a nice experiment. Let's imagine that each transistor in this chip that you're designing is actually the size of a penny. How big would the processor be? Well, that's what uh, a thousand transistors looks like. Okay, then we have a hundred thousand, uh, a million transistors, ten million transistors. Remember, these are all pennies. A hundred million transistors, a billion transistors. Okay, that's what a that's what a billion pennies looks like. Okay, that's how many transistors fit in one chip inside your cell phone. Remember that little piece in there? All those are jammed in there. Okay, each one of those blocks, by the way. Uh, you know, it's about 11 feet high, 41 feet by 45 feet. Each one of those bo boxes there is about the size of a large school bus. Okay? And all those transistors, that's, uh, that's 1 billion, 4 billion transistors fit in that little square. I, I can't even. <laughs> I can't even. I don't understand how that's possible, but it is. Okay? It's amazing. The computational power that you have in a modern machine is just hard to comprehend. Okay, not only that, as I told you, actually, in a microprocessor, sure, I can build a lot of transistors, but how I actually wire them up actually gives them their structure. It gives them their, it makes them what they, it makes the processor what it is. It gives it its computational abilities. So how much wiring do you think is in a little microprocessor? So here's actually a microprocessor. If you cut it in half, here's your microprocessor, you cut it in half, and then you look at the side. Actually, what you'll see is tons and tons and tons of these tiny, tiny little wires. Okay, and that, and you can, again, you can see the scale there. It's about 54 nanometers uh, pitch between the wires. Okay, so here's kind of an interesting question. What if you took all those wires, okay, all the wires in that little tiny square that is your microprocessor, and you pulled them out with, you know, nanoscopic tweezers? It's a very hard job, okay? You pull them all out, and you line them up end to end. How long do you think I could stretch, how long do you think that wire would be if I just started pulling on it? If I start pulling on that wire, you know, how much wiring do you think is in that tiny little microprocessor? If I start pulling, you know, I could e I could, you would definitely be able to see it. It's long enough I can, you can see it. In fact, I can get all the way across the stage. In fact, I can cross the stage. I could keep pulling all the way across to the other end of campus. In fact, I could keep pulling and walk all the way to the middle of downtown Santa Barbara from here. That's how, there's about nine miles of wiring inside your little microprocessor. How, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what to say. That's amazing that we build these things. You know, so from here to downtown, easily. It's actually a, long, a little bit longer than that, probably about 9.5 miles from my calculations last night. <laughs> okay, not only that, not only that, not only do we fit a ton of these, billions of these transistors, and not only do we fit miles and miles of wiring into each microprocessor, we then actually run them incredibly fast. You know, so for example, you know, who wins this race? Light traveling a foot from here, that's how far you get, that's how far light gets to run, versus multiplying 200 numbers. I wouldn't put this up if light won, actually. <laughs> the processor wins. In fact, not only does it win, it wins pretty handedly. In fact, it could do 200 and then you go for a victory lap of another 200 multiplies, right? That's how fast these things are. And that's 
I want to keep in mind, that's one microprocessor, okay? Then we take these one microprocessors, and then we make giant warehouses full of them, right? So just you know, thousands and thousands of CPUs fill data centers now, you know, and they just go on forever. Amazing, amazing. Think about that. Think about the billions and billions of operations that are happening in each individual node there. And then the thousands or hundreds of thousands of, of cores that are actually spread across this whole data center. And think about the potential that you have in that computational framework. It's pretty amazing. So big idea number two, no one can comprehend the scale of computing that we do today. I do, I do work in the data center. I do work designing tiny chips. I do this stuff, as I say, every single day of my life, and even I have to do this by math, because when I try to intuit it, I can't. You know, it's just the scale of this is too, in, in too massive. Okay, so now, the third big idea, I want to tell you about some research that we have going on in our lab. I've been lucky enough in my career to be able to contribute to the design of, uh, of these microprocessors, uh, and, but recently we've been doing a bunch of work that's trying to examine you know, how do we get even better? How do we get beyond some of the traditional limitations when you design microprocessors? Okay, and that brings us back to this picture of the switch. Now, a switch, uh, you know, switch has this following property, which I didn't tell you about before. Um, when I switch it, there's a delay between, you know, when I cl close the switch and how long it takes for that left-hand side to propagate over to the right-hand side. Okay, there's a delay there. And in fact, that delay is one of the limiting things. That, that's basically what determines how fast you can run your microprocessor, is that delay. Uh, they, they, they add up. So working with uh, Professor Dmitry Strukov and one of his graduate students, Ed Wyatt, uh, you know, we had a very interesting question, which was, what if we could use delay to do computation? Right? Rather than have delay be something that limits us, Maybe we could actually do useful work with delay. It's kind of an interesting high-level question. And it turns out uh, that, in fact, you can. In fact, you can what you can do is you can encode data that you want to do computations on as delay. And then some really interesting things happen when you do that. Okay? So here's a, here's a picture that Dan describes at a very high level. Now we're getting down into the, into the details a little bit. But you know, here's a picture that kind of describes the intuition behind this. If you have a signal, and those signals go from 0 to 1, it's, a, it's still a binary system, just like a normal computer, where all the signals in the system are zeros and ones. Um, but you know, here's, And then time is running along the x-axis here. You can see a signal starts at 0 and then goes to 1. And I have two signals here, A and B, the top and bottom ones. Okay. Now, what, now what happens is, look, if I make a thing that basically takes uh, whichever one arrives first, that actually is a logic gate, is an is a OR gate. Uh, but in this weird delay world, is actually a min operation. If I take the thing that happens first, it's actually the min of A and B. And so that's actually a really interesting, uh, this is a kind of a neat observation, because I could take this very simple thing, of a little tiny gate that I can build out of, you know, on the order of three or four transistors, and I can do a new operation with them I couldn't do before. I can do this min operation. And you think, okay, well, min is nice. But you can actually not just build min, you can build a lot of different stuff. You can build min, and you can build max, and you can build median, and you can build increment, quality check. You can build all kinds of really interesting new functions in this weird encoding where delay is capturing how long, you know, capturing the data you want to compute on. 
So we actually, you know, did some really kind of theoretical work on this, and then we actually showed, oh, you know what, not only is it just theoretical, you can actually solve some interesting problems. And here I'll give you the intuition for one of the problems you could solve. One of the problems that works really well with this is actually if I want to find the shortest path. So I'm traveling from here down to Santa Barbara because I've got this tiny wire I have to carry it down there. And I want, <laughs> I want to find the shortest path, right? Well, I can actually build a graph, that, uh, build a, this, this uh, data structure, and I can actually say, look, what I want to do is I actually want to find the minimum path through this, through this set of nodes. Uh, and in fact, these min and max and add, that's actually totally sufficient for you to, actually, to do this type of computation. Uh, so you can do this kind of computation uh, with a radical efficiency that you couldn't achieve before. And you think, you know, shortest path is pretty nice. I like shortest path, but, you know, how often do I have to calculate shortest path? Mm, actually, not all that often. It's not actually that hard of a problem either. But we also figured out, once we figured out that one, that you can do other more complex things. So one of the things that we figured out you could do is DNA sequencing. So DNA sequencing is actually kind of like shortest path, it turns out. It turns out that actually to find the minimum uh, the, you, want, you have some DNA sequence here and some DNA sequence here, and you want to see how similar they are. What you're trying to do is actually match them up. And, you know, what you're trying to do is find the shortest path through this matching, really. And, uh, and by doing so, uh, you actually find the, the, yeah, the, the best matching between these two sequences. And we showed how you're actually using this very simple uh, new type of computation that you can do this uh, do this, this, uh, this DNA sequencing very, very effectively. Then a really interesting thing happened. Okay, so we wrote this paper. It's still fairly theoretical. It's also still very application-specific. We said, look, you know, we're trying to solve this problem of, of DNA sequencing. We've been looking at some other algorithms. And we got an email from, uh, from a, a researcher, Jim Smith, uh, who was looking at the way the brain does computation. And he had a very interesting observation. He said, look, I believe, this is Jim Smith talking, that, that the brain actually is using delay to do computation. Because these neurons are actually connected up in all kinds of interesting ways that you can't explain in any other way, and his, you know, is his take. Uh, and that, that, in fact, as the signals propagate through these complex networks in the brain, that actually in doing that, you're actually doing some computation. And we actually spent about six months trying to figure out how his theory and our theory actually connected. And it turns out they're actually deeply connected. And it turns out that you can sort of unify these under a single new theory of which we call space-time computing, with four, and basically it comes down to four basic operations. Min, max, this delay, and this thing is called inhibit, which basically allows you to uh, um, observe something and then stop something in the future from happening. And we have some really nice, nice new evidence that shows that, in fact, we believe this set to be complete. We believe that anything you can compute uh, in this way can be computed by these four things. And we actually also know that these four things, you can implement them incredibly efficiently. So it's really exciting. Um, so will it work? I actually don't know. <laughs> there you go. But I know we built a chip. Actually, I had why I didn't build the chip. Uh, I advised. <laughs> One of the nice things about being an advisor. Uh, you know, there's our, the first test chip of the, doing this, this sort of uh, delay propagation logic. It's pretty neat.
So the story is the story is out. Actually, I wanted to present to you something that's right at the edge of what we're doing today. We don't know exactly how well this is going to work. We don't know exactly what types of computations you can do more efficiently this way. Uh, we do we do have some strong hints that this is a, a really interesting new way to do computation, but we won't know until we actually take some applications that show that yes, you can really do computation in this totally new way. But we're building stuff. So number three, my big idea three, I think. We must continue to improve. We need, these, we need to continue this trend of taking truly fantastical ideas and then turning them into mundane ideas through computation. You know, I really deeply believe that. Uh, I also deeply believe from my work that I present here and many of the other projects I've done that we still have a long way to go. We, I know we can do much better, um, and we have a huge opportunity to, to make computing even better uh, than it has been in the past. So I just want to thank um, all of my current grad students as well as my many past grad students uh, who've worked on this project, and I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.